0: Our reading this afternoon will come from the book of Judges, the 11th chapter, and there we'll read the first two verses to introduce our study, and again, the scriptures will be up here on the screen, and they're from the New King James Version. Judges chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, there we read, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Perhaps there's been an occasion where you've been reading through your Old Testament, and you've come across this midsection of the book of Judges, and you've read about this man Jephthah, And some of the decisions that he made, and maybe you've been uncertain as to exactly what happens in this story. We want to spend a little time this afternoon talking about this judge who the Bible calls a mighty man of valor. After the death of the deliverer Moses, God ordained Joshua, son of Nun, as Israel's leader. Joshua was primarily a military commander. He first demonstrated his prowess for generaling in Exodus 17 when he led Israel's fighting men against an attack from the Amalekites. Joshua's reign as Israel's leader proved to be one of the highlights in the history of this new nation, other than an embarrassing defeat at Ai, which was the result of sin in the camp. The Hebrews charged through the land of Canaan, conquering and settling. The scripture even says that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel, Joshua 24, 31. Even though Joshua had led the Israelites to great victories in Canaan, there remained many parts of the land which were still inhabited by various heathen non-Hebrew groups, The first chapter of Judges records where some of these areas were located, where the conquest had not really been complete. And since there was no central power or united army as there was under Joshua, each individual tribe was responsible for subduing their enemies and fully conquering their territory. However, what generally transpired was the heathens would be left alone And eventually Israel would enter into idolatry. Now this may seem pretty difficult to believe considering the Israelites had seen God perform such wondrous and marvelous works on their behalf. But I think it's probably a lot more simple than maybe we give it credit for. Imagine that you are an Israelite living on your new piece of land, and you're a farmer, and everything you have is right there on your farm. And whatever you grow, that's what you live on. And if you can't grow it, you don't have it. If you have a bad year, there's no Walmart to go to to find relief. That's all you have. That's your livelihood. And let's say one particular year, you had a terrible year on the farm. I mean, you had no rain, Uh, you had all kinds of locusts and bugs, and your best animals broke their legs, and you just had a miserable, miserable year on the farm. And uh, just up the road, maybe a mile or so, was some Canaanite who lived up there. And uh, his farm seemed to flourish. Oh, the rain skipped you, but they showered him. The bugs skipped him and showered you. And his animals were healthy and thriving and productive. And so you look up at your neighbor and you say, what am I doing wrong? And what is he doing right? Well, maybe I need to be worshiping the gods he worships. Maybe I need to be serving the idols he serves. And that's exactly what they would do. After a time of idolatry, God would send a punishment upon the people. Usually this came in the form of a heathen army that raided Israel for their food stores and livestock. Or maybe even sometimes a heathen army would come and retake the land that the Israelites had already conquered. And so after this would happen, the Israelites would repent and they would pray for God to deliver them. And then God would raise up a judge. The judge was not a king. He or she, as in the case of Deborah, was usually a military leader who would gather some troops together and drive out the opposing people. Some of the judges helped in settling disputes, but generally a judge was a fighter. And very little is known about most of the judges, especially about their upbringing and history before they became a judge. But there is one judge about which a great deal is known, and his name is Jephthah. The background to the narrative is told at the end of Judges chapter 10. Israel has sinned against God, and as a punishment, God allowed the Israelites to be oppressed by the heathen Ammonites. The Israelites were suffering badly, and their suffering brought them to their senses, and so they decided to return to God. We read in Judges chapter 10, beginning in verse 15, And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead the Israelites needed a leader this is a Pretty famous scene that's found several times in the Old Testament. You have one army camped along one ridge. And maybe there's a valley in the middle. And another army camped along another ridge. And there's taunting going back and forth. This is reminiscent of David and Goliath and the Israelites and the Philistines. And the Israelites are looking around for somebody who can start the fight. Somebody who is capable and qualified to lead them into battle against those who would oppose them. Now, immediately after this, we're introduced to Jephthah, and we're told that Jephthah is a mighty man of valor. But Jephthah was not initially considered for the job because of his background. You see, his father was Gilead, and this region is called Gilead, so his father is likely the ancient patriarch of this region. But his mother was a harlot. His mother was a harlot. And so Jephthah was rejected. He was rejected by his own family. His stepmother and half-brothers looked down on him and treated him cruelly, even telling him, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman, Judges 11 and verse two. And so Jephthah was driven away from his father's house and from his homeland. And what difficulty this would have been for Jephthah as a young man to be cast out and cast aside by your own family, to be left to be, uh, have to survive on your own without help or aid. Jephthah suffered. He had a difficult childhood. He had a difficult time as a young man. He surely felt worthless about himself. But what's so wonderful and amazing about the scripture is that these are the exact type of people God picks up and uses in his service. The people that no one would think twice about. The people that no one would take a second glance to even look upon. These are the people that God uses to accomplish incredible things. And so we read in Judges 11, beginning in verse 6, that they said to Jephthah, come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we've turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. You may come from difficult and painful circumstances. Or you may have had a difficult childhood. You may have faced obstacles and heartaches that no one should have to face in life. And if that's you, then you're like Jephthah, who had to endure things because of who he was from birth, not because of what he did in life. Jephthah's life teaches us that the outcasts of this world can rise above their circumstances to do great works for the Lord. And so Jephthah takes this charge and he begins by negotiating a plea deal with the Ammonites. The plea concludes in Judges 11:27 27 and 28, when Jephthah says, Therefore, I have not sinned against you. He is negotiating with the king of the Ammonites. I've not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. I love this part. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words with Jephthah sent him. I love this part because Jephthah realizes that this isn't about him. This isn't about him. This isn't even about Israel. He says this is about the Lord and the Lord has given judgment and will give it again. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment concerning this matter. And so Jephthah waits. He puts this in the hands of the Lord and it's not until verse 29 when the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. By the way, there are 12 judges in the book of Judges and only four of them are ever said to have the Spirit of the Lord come upon them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. Jephthah in these verses shows a wonderful quality of waiting with patience on the Lord. Waiting with patience on the Lord. As the psalmist says, to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. This wasn't about Jephthah. wasn't about Israel. It was about the Lord. Now we come to a problem. Now we come to a crisis. And now we come to the greatest mistake Jephthah ever made. When he entered hastily into a vow. And we read about this in Judges chapter 11 and verses 30 and 31. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Jephthah's vow will be the focus of the remainder of our sermon tonight because it's been used by skeptics and critics of the Bible as cannon fodder against the morality of the Scriptures, and so it deserves our attention. Shortly after this vow was made, Jephthah advanced his soldiers against the Ammonites and was victorious in defeating them. When he returned home from his conquest, his joy turned sour. When he came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter. There was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. And a few verses later, the Bible simply says, Jephthah carried out his vow with her, Which he had vowed. The question is Did Jephthah offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord? The accusation is How could someone possibly uphold the Bible as a guide for moral living when it allows and condones? human sacrifice, child sacrifice at that. Therefore, the, the skeptics and critics say the Bible must be ignored because it's an immoral book. But we want to consider this issue tonight, and there are several things that we need to address, and so we'll take them one at a time. And the first one I know will thrill your heart, and that is that I've come all this way to talk about grammar. Grammar. Now, if you don't like grammar, I'm sorry, you'll have to just bear with this. The Lord could have chosen any way to reveal his will to us, and he chose language and words. And so sometimes that means we have to talk a little about grammar. And the first thing that we want to discuss is that the text of the scripture itself does not demand a sacrifice. You'll notice that nowhere in the chapter does it say anything like, and Jephthah offered his daughter as a burnt offering, and Jephthah sacrificed his daughter upon the altar. No such sentence or anything similar to that is found anywhere in the chapter. But also we need to pay a little attention to Jephthah's vow itself. In verse 31, Jephthah said, It will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, in the Hebrew language, you have this little letter here, and this letter is called a wow. It's a W. It's a W. And this little letter right here is the common conjunction in the Hebrew language. On English, we have a lot of conjunctions. And, but, or, so. All of those are conjunctions. Words that combine different concepts or different actions or different ideas together. But in Hebrew, you really only have this one conjunction. And so if you have a Hebrew sentence... Like, uh, we'll take a couple of Hebrew verbs here. This is Amar, it means he said, and this is Halak, and it means he walked. Okay? So we have two actions here, Amar and Halak. He said, he walked. Well, if we want to combine those two together, let's say one person is doing the saying and the walking, all we would do is come over here, right here, and put this little letter right there. That's it. And once we've added this little letter right here, well, we can translate that as all these different possibilities. He walked and he said. He walked, then he said. He walked or he said. But he said. So he said. In fact, the wow conjunction right here can be translated into words that aren't even usually conjunctions in English, like the word then. To denote ongoing action. Okay, let me give you an example. In Genesis 13 and verse 9, when Abram and Lot are going to separate from one another. Abram says, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you go to the left, then I will go to the right. Or, if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. And this word or right here is the same exact word as and up here. It's that little wow conjunction. The only way to know how to translate this conjunction is the context. That's the only way to know. So in Genesis 13:9, it's easy. Abraham is giving two options. If you go this way, I'll go this way. Or if you go this way, I'll go this way. And that's how it's easy to know if it's an or. But what about this one right here? Could Jephthah be saying whatever comes out to meet me shall surely be the Lord's or I will offer it up as a burnt offering? That would be a perfectly acceptable translation. In fact, Young's literal translation of the Bible gives that exact rendering. Not that Jephthah is combining the two actions, but that he's saying, I'll do one or the other. Whatever comes out to meet me shall surely be the Lord's, or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. That's our first point. The text does not demand a sacrifice. Jephthah could be giving two different options. But now we go to number two, and we have to note that human sacrifice is forbidden in the law of Moses. Human sacrifice is explicitly condemned in the law of Moses. Look, it's three scriptures with me. Deuteronomy 18, 9 and 10. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among, uh, found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through Now this phrase, pass through the fire, is a common Hebrew idiom to describe human sacrifice, child sacrifice. It was a common practice amongst the worshipers of Molech. And God is so disgusted by this particular sin that in Leviticus chapter 20, he applies the death penalty to it. When the Bible says the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Again you shall say to the children of Israel, Whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in, the, in Israel who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. And one more scripture. Deuteronomy 12, 29-32. Read this one now. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you're not ensnared to follow them after they're destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? I will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abomination to the Lord which he hates They've done to their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. This was a death penalty offense. You sacrifice a human being, you die. That's what the law of Moses taught. Does this sound like what we know about Jephthah? Did you know that Jephthah's mentioned in the roll call of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Right here. Verses 32 through 34. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. There he is. Also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fly at the armies of the aliens. In fact, after Jephthah did what he did with his daughter, the Bible says he reigned as judge for another six years. God blessed him for what he did. Does that sound like someone who violated the law of Moses committing a death penalty offense? Okay, let's go on to number three. Number three, the third thing we have to talk about is the focus of the passage. The focus of the passage. Now, when Jephthah arrived home, he met his daughter and he explained to her the vow that he had made. She told him that a vow is a sacred thing and he has to keep his word. He has to keep his oath to the Lord. But she made one request. Look at a request in verses 37 and 38. She said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity my friends and I. And he said, go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. Bewail my virginity. This girl doesn't have her priorities in in order. She's worried about her father's about to murder her and offer her as a burnt sacrifice and all she can think about is her virginity. She wants to go spend the last two months of her life crying about it with her friends on the mountain. Look at what happens next in verse 39. And it was so at the end of the two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed she knew no man. Why is that explanatory clause added to the end of verse 30? Of course she knew no man. She was dead. If the sacrifice view is true. Why did the writer, why did the Holy Spirit feel the need to add these four words to the end of verse 39? No, a sacrifice doesn't make sense. Something else is going on here. Something else is going on. One more issue to consider. And for this, we look to the last part of the chapter, verses 39 and 40. Thus, it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Now, this is from the New American Standard Version. If you're reading the King James or the New King James, it doesn't say commemorate. It says lament, It says lament, and that's a bad translation a bad translation, this word is used 39 times in the Old Testament, and this is the only time it's ever translated lament in the New King James or King James Bible. The word is tanah. It means to rehearse or to celebrate. And so what we have here is instead of shock and outcry and disgust and horror... That a judge, a leader in Israel, would kill his daughter in gross violation of the law of Moses. Instead of outcry, there was an annual party. There was an annual celebration to commemorate what occurred on this time a four day festival held every year. And so to review, the language of the text does not demand a sacrifice. Human sacrifice, especially child sacrifice, was explicitly condemned to the law of Moses and Jephthah is praised as a hero of faith in Hebrews 11. Instead of emphasizing her impending death, there's a focus on her virginity and there was an annual celebration in Israel commemorating this girl. Human sacrifice doesn't fit the context. It doesn't fit. Look at what Alfred Edersheim, the noted scholar, remarked. On all these grounds, he said, On all these grounds, its utter contrariety to the whole Old Testament, the known piety of Jephthah, the blessing following upon him, his mention in the epistle of the Hebrews, but especially the language of the narrative itself, we feel bound to reject the idea of any human sacrifice. And to that I say, amen. So what happened? What happened? If she wasn't sacrificed, what happened? If we take Jephthah's vow to be whoever or whatever comes out to meet me shall surely be the Lord's or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And he chose the first option. He dedicated his daughter to the Lord. How did that work? Well, the text really just doesn't say. But the text seems to imply that in some way she was dedicated as a perpetual virgin In service to God. Now, I don't know this to be the case, this next thing of what I'm going to tell you. So you take it for what it is. But I have a theory. I have a theory. In Exodus 39, and again in 1 Samuel 2, there are two times in the Old Testament where it mentions that women served at the door of the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was being built in Exodus 39, that's mentioned. And in 1 Samuel 2, during the days of Samuel, that's mentioned again. Women served at the door of the tabernacle. We don't know what these women did. Perhaps they greeted worshipers who had traveled a great distance to bring their offering to the tabernacle. Perhaps they helped as uh, intermediaries between the worshipers and the priests. Maybe they provided food and drink and they washed the feet of the weary travelers. Whatever they did, these women served at the tabernacle and it seems that that was the dedication of their life. Maybe that's how Jephthah's daughter was dedicated to the Lord. Perhaps that's how she was dedicated in full-time service to the Lord. Now some people will ask, why was Jephthah so upset when his daughter, if he wasn't going to kill her, why was he so upset when she came out to meet him? Well, remember, we're dealing with an ancient culture. And we're dealing with a people who lived on the continuation of the family line. Children were everything to the Israelites because they, that meant that the family continued and God's blessings continued to future generations. And what did it say about this girl? She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither sons nor daughters. That means that if she didn't marry and produce children, his family line is extinguished. His name is blotted out from Israel and his land is given to someone else. And so he's upset about that. He weeps about that. Well, in conclusion this afternoon, maybe we can make a very quick couple of applications. I think there are a lot of great lessons in this incident. And the first one is maybe the most obvious of all. And that is the narrative of Jephthah warns against the danger of making a hasty decision. Now, this is a problem we have today in the world. Young people especially are hasty to make life decisions that have repercussions for years to come. We live in a society of great busyness where we're running from one errand to another, from work to home and back to work again, uh, doing all that we can in the short amount of time that we have. Sometimes we get so busy and so crazy that we make decisions without thinking them through. Jephthah teaches us that there are times when we have to step back and think about the consequences of our actions. But number two, and maybe most importantly of all, the narrative of Jephthah teaches that sometimes our happiness... Sometimes even a child's happiness must be set aside to serve the Lord. Faithfulness is more important than happiness. If Jephthah's daughter was like any other young girl I've ever known, she thought about her future. She thought about her future. She thought about finding a boy that she liked. She thought about getting married. She thought about having children and raising a family. She thought about her future. And she was willing to set all of that aside because of a commitment her father made for her. Jephthah must have been some kind of father. And his daughter must have been some kind of girl. To say, yes, dad, I'll set it all aside. So that you can keep your word to the Lord. Faithfulness is more important than happiness. And sometimes there are things in life that we really want. That we have to give up to serve the Lord. This girl was willing to do it. She said, Dad, give me two months to be upset about it. And I'll come back and do what I need to do. And she did. She did. And that is incredible to me. That's incredible to me. Now, it's not just young people. All of us, from time to time, are faced with decisions as to whether we're going to choose faithfulness, or happiness, whether we're going to do what's right or what we want to do, whether we're going to serve the Lord or serve ourselves, we face those kinds of decisions all the time. And Jephthah's life teaches us that faithfulness always trumps happiness. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by The Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.